Okay, here we go. My what? You just got recorded. <laughs> yeah. My wife just got recorded. Come on down, we're starting. All right. Come on, class. Come on down. Susie, come on. We're already late today. Okay. Oh, there you go. Excellent. All right. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank and praise you. We exalt your holy name as the God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings. We thank you, O Lord, for those who have come to hear the word of God, to have their spirits refreshed uh, and uh, established in Christ and his words of truth. To the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, This is the second part of our series on the Old Testament books and the survey of those Old Testament books. I did the first part last week uh, in the book of Exodus. Pat did two, two studies in the book of Genesis, and I'm doing two in Exodus. And then after this, each Old Testament book will have only one study. We're trying to set a, uh, you could say, establish a, um, a hermeneutic, you could say, in relationship to looking at the Bible through the lens of uh, God's kingship as creator, uh, who reserves the right and has the authority only to establish the heavens and the earth in his creational work, and also Exodus, to establish a nation for his own possession, establish a nation to call a royal priesthood in a holy nation. We know that that echoes what Peter says in relationship to our own relationship to Christ, uh, that God has called us to the very same type of calling. So there is not only an echo, but there's a type and the anti-type that is coming forth from the book of Exodus. We are those who have an Exodus experience through conversion, as Israel has their own Exodus uh, experience from the city of man. And this is the motif I've chosen to use in relationship to trying to you know, survey, you could say, the book of Exodus in relationship to what Augustine pointed to as the city of man and the city of God. Egypt is the city of man. We, Israel, also is the city of God, being delivered from their bondage and slavery of sin with the hope of entering into a promised land filled with milk and honey. And so because of that, we see already this thread of redemptive history. We shouldn't be surprised you go back to Genesis. It starts very, very early in Genesis chapter 3. God knew in advance from the end to the beginning. He knows all the things from uh, the beginning and things yet to come that man would need to be redeemed. And with that in mind, he created the world with the divine will and knowledge that man would fall. And so in this, God has given this this beautiful Old Testament book with 41 different authors that really tell the story of redemption. And uh, it's quite a privilege to have it in our hands because not every country will allow you to have it in your hands. They'll confiscate it at the airport. 
So um, we we already started in earnest somewhat of the survey of the book of, Eph- uh, of Exodus, but we ended with Moses. Uh, Moses was a man who was faithful. Uh, we ended with Hebrews 11. Uh, Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment and the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for or to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passed through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. That is the ultimate part of the redemptive story. God will be vindicated. You read the book of Revelation, I think it's stated two distinct times in the book of Revelation, that God is also desiring for us children of faith for him to vindicate you and I. And therefore, when we look at the Old Testament scriptures, God is destroying evil and restoring good. Paradise is lost, but it will be found again. So, what we have here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, and can imagine this, um, I hope I have the sense of mind to be able to, um, before someone throws a rock big enough to crack my head open, uh, to say this, Come now, I will send you to Egypt. He's recalling Israel's history. You'd say, well, what other spiritual words could he recall before he's going to be stoned to death? But he's recounting the story because it's important to him. Stories are very important to us. Narrative history is very important to us. Biblical narrative history. And so for Stephen, it is also for us. The history of the Old Testament is extremely important to us. Therefore, in chapters 7 through 12, the ten plagues that Moses performed before Pharaoh bring God's power to the earth. Each plague demonstrates God's judgment over man's polytheistic worldview. So just I want to start today with a simple question. Where are we at right now in relationship to the gods of Egypt and the pagan world? And where are we today in relationship to it? Do we still have polytheism? Which is, by the way, opposite of monotheism. Multiple gods throughout the world. But how has it now been revealed within the 21st century? We're certainly not worshipping the god Ra, the, the god of the sun, as the Egyptians did, right? So where do we see this? Because remember, and, and answer the question in relationship to this. Genesis is the book of God as creator who creates everything for his own good and pleasure. For those to worship him. And think of where we are today in response to how we... Re- look to God as the creator. We have rejected him. So, did you have your hands up, Mark? I, no, I'll just... Okay. What do you see polytheism in the modern world? 
I mean, you can go and still see the cargo gods in Polynesia. You can still talk to an American Indian who says, by the way, God is in that tree. Right? But we see it, you could say, morphed into something more intellectual, more mystical. Where do we see it? Yeah, Ron? All you have to do is look at the... Look at a paper from yesterday and look at the marches all over this country. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, like, then, you know, you talk about, we don't, we might not worship Baal, uh, um, but we worship Moloch. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, you know, so we've taken, we've taken from, from what is a gift of God mm-hmm. and we're sacrificing it. For uh, for uh, the idols of you know you name it pleasure whatever mm-hmm. and you know and Lord help her you know like you know if, if we think that we we have uh, any kind of uh, excuse mm-hmm. you know when you look at what God you know like you're looking at Exodus you know and you look at what you know how God looks at that you know looks at the Moabites and uh, those com- those those nations, and uh, you know, we and we are mm-hmm. we are so far down that road. Just because it has a different name doesn't mean it doesn't resemble the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, we have pantheism that still exists, but in different forms today. Uh, a book I'm reading: um, uh, Christians and Pagans in the City, right now by a guy named I think. His name is Carl Stevens. Anyways, he makes it um, important for the reader to know, for understanding the entirety of the book, is that um, when you were a Roman citizen, you were a Roman citizen integrated within the polytheistic system. So in other words, to rebel against the gods of Rome was to rebel against Rome, and vice versa. Rome became a sacred place. What we are seeing in our environmental movements of today uh, and also our own self-worship and the Satan worship that we see today and environmentalism is the fact that we have made this earth the sacred place. And that's a huge shift. That's, it, it's become now a spiritual endeavor to protect the earth. And therefore, where you're not going to see less spirituality as we get in a post-Christian world, um, you're going to see actually more spirituality in relationship to a pagan worldview that makes this earth sacred. So that's where we're at. Mark? I was going to mention that uh, many of these things, that you, as you comment already, are religions. That's right. And they, they have their sacraments, they have their practices, uh, and they have their, uh, their, their zealots. Mm-hmm. There, and, and it's, it, because of the boundaries, I mean, uh, just people stand. I was there standing up uh, up the street from my house yesterday. Uh, pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, young women, you know, pro-choice. I'm thinking nobody has taken away your choice. Mm-hmm. But there's a deeper issue than so-called choice. The deeper issue is spiritual. Oh no question. And relationship. For instance, see what's going on here. Self-esteem movement. The self-empowerment movement, mindfulness, yoga, gender identity, all these point to a self-worship. I don't have, the world does not have a creator 
creation distinction. We are now our own creators. Therefore, all of man has made themselves their own new creation rather than needing a new creation in Christ. So this is where we're at. So there's a segue that's going on in the book of Exodus in relationship to this polytheistic world in Egypt. And that is the ten plagues occur and then the tenth plague is the plague where the young men of the firstborn of Egypt must be killed. Now granted, um, this is just one sign of many signs that uh, God gave to Moses to literally defend his name against the paganism of the day. Go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at 12 through verse 14. Just two verses. Oh, I'm in Leviticus. How am I doing? I'm in Leviticus. All right. All right. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, that Passover night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will ex- execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass you over. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Literally, the Passover ends up being, for Israel, the historical background giving a spiritual meaning to Israel's temple worship. They will always remember this day when God delivered them through blood and from the pagan gods who shed blood, the blood of men. So, we see that God is accomplishing two different things going on here. First, the deliverance of Israel. Secondly, to protect his name and judge the earth, in particular Egypt at this period of time. He judged the earth before Noah, right? Um, he judged it with uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, he judges the earth regularly in the sense that uh, men die. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. But judgment and God's judgment is continually reigning over this earth because men die. And so, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just, I just want to show you one little concept when we look at your Old Testament. Eventually men will die. In fact, eventually men, all men will die and Jesus will return. And I want you to get an overall look of how we should view the Bible. So that is 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to look at verses 23 through 25. 
Romans. Again, I did the same thing. Romans 15 instead of 1 Corinthians 15. How am I doing? Alright. So, verse 23. But each to his own. Now, this is in the order of resurrection. But each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and others, Christ is risen. Then the fruit, first fruits of Christ's resurrection are risen. And then it says, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Right? Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, to our God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. That's the ultimate goal of God here. He's beginning to abolish the rule and the authority of this earth. All of the paganistic gods of this earth, all those who are false idols who blaspheme the name of the Creator God named Yahweh. And so when we look at the world, the city of man has, has and is destroying itself. And God must judge sin. Pharaoh's hardened heart symbolizes the city of man's resistance to God and the resistance to God's prophets, Moses. The church is different from the world. Israel left in haste, taking with them unleavened bread. Israel was called out of the city of man to live righteously in this new life and in a new life and a new way of living, as Paul says, in the church. Go to 1 Corinthians 5 now. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, it'll be easy for you to get there. 1 Corinthians 5, just verses 6 through 8. Another thought, not interpreting the text. Now, the context here, of course, is a man who has committed incest. The, the, the second even, and, and even more miserable sin is, is that the church didn't do anything about it. So Paul is going to use the, the, uh, the reference of leaven and unleavened as holiness and unholiness within the church. The body is now leavened, right? Cast out the man, cast out the man who committed the sin to Satan or to the world, back to the city of man. Look what it says in verses uh, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good, talking to the church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, that is sin, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity in truth. This memorial of the Passover would be a recommitment to holiness every year that they observed it. And, and Israel is being called to leave the city of man because that's the place of sin, of leaven. And he says, go, I'm going to lead you to a promised land, but first I'm going to show you how not to sin, to restrain the flesh. And how does he do that? They first go within that first year, which the book of Exodus covers, they go to Sinai to receive the law of God. Why? Because they've been under the law of men so far. 
400 years, things get lost very quickly in an age where there is no prophets, or in this case, any patriarchs to follow in faith the living God. So Exodus is, you could say, a storyline of God's redemption of fleeing the city of man and running to the city of God in holiness. So they head to Sinai. The Red Sea stands as not only a literal event, miraculous event, but he condemns the people of Egypt, the soldiers of Egypt, by encompassing them with water and swallowing them up by the sea. Separating finally the children of Israel, the people chosen for God's own possession, by separating them by water, the city of man and the city of God. Heading to a new promised land. And yet, the wilderness experience, Moses tell them, tells them, is going to be a test for you. Are you faithful to follow me? Because God knows, obviously, in advance. And it's probably informed Moses, this is not going to be an easy trip 40 years into the wilderness. In fact, the 40 years was not even planned in the sense of the mind of man. It was a simple couple-week trick to get to the promised land. But we know it didn't turn out that way. Exodus 16.4 says, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and people will go out that I may test them. That's God's plan for the children of Israel. Give them the laws of God that they might live in righteousness and holiness of truth. Following God's mediator, the man, not Jesus, but Moses, who is a type of Jesus. And follow him, listen to him, and you will not stumble within the wilderness. Deuteronomy, Moses says again in chapter 8, He might humble you that you he might test you and do good to you in the end. This is a long-term plan for God, right? We already know, right? I mean, uh, they get into the promised land. What happens to them? Pretty big failure pretty quickly. They disobey God right off the bat by preserving uh, animals and people. And that becomes the leaven that still remains within the land. Hosea says, and kind of wraps it up for the experience that they will have in the wilderness. And granted, again, Exodus is not dealing with the wilderness, but you can't, you can't talk about Exodus without the leading towards this wilderness experience towards a land filled with milk and honey. Hosea said, um, because of their unfaithfulness and their unrighteousness, because of their murders, the people mourn, and those who live in the land languish. The birds of this the air, the fish of the sea, and the beast of the field, they disappear. The people will languish in that wilderness. Why? Because they did not heed God's prophet. God gave Israel a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day to guide Israel, and yet they comprehended it not. They will literally be immersed, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, into the cloud and into Moses' ministry as mediator. And yet, what did they do? Exodus 14. For it would have been better for us, the Jews say, 
after they've been delivered after the plague. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Could you imagine that? There is this temptation, I think, for every single believer. Old Testament, New Testament. I am, as the song goes, I am prone to wander. I'm prone, I'm prone to look back as if the grass is greener on the other side of my neighbor's lawn. Right? And a part of the Ten Commandments, right? We haven't even gotten there. Part of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Right? This separation of ourselves from the world and worldly thinking and thinking more like God and then obeying Him. Because if we don't think like God, we will start coveting what the world offers to us. The grass is greener. There is temporary pleasure, but it never satisfies. Unbelief can be really, really ugly. And it is in the wilderness. God's purposes are not just fulfilled, though, in saving Israel, as I mentioned before. Listen to what Moses said. I will be honored through Pharaoh. What a fascinating storyline that is. You go to Romans 9, which we're going to. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And by the way, there's not one drop of salvation in that message. Right? Not one drop of salvation in that message. For in times past, he left all the nations to themselves. Acts 14, 16. Left them to themselves. The worst thing that God can do for any nation is to leave them to themselves. That's Romans 1, isn't it? Leaving the nations to themselves, to their own thoughts. What happens when they are left to their own thoughts? They worship the creature rather than the creator. And that's where we're at. Go to Romans 9. We can't help but follow the storyline of Exodus by following the storyline of some of the characters that are in Exodus in the New Testament, right? It just fills in the story so much more completely. We would have never known the thoughts of Moses unless we read Hebrews chapter 11. We never would have thought that Moses was thinking when he was still there as an Egyptian, I'm really not enjoying any of the pleasures that are offered me anymore. And then, the New Testament says, and then it entered his mind. He longed for his brethren at that moment. So we would have never known these things unless we looked into our New Testament that helps us fill in the picture. In 22 through 24, first, and we'll go backwards, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us. By the way, that says you and I are vessels of mercy. Even us. And so God rules what he creates. The motif here in Paul's argument is he's a potter who has the rights over the clay. He molds some vessels of righteousness. By the way, as a potter, not every piece comes out perfectly. 
So, in those pieces, he throws it back in the heap. You can still find archaeological sites in areas where there are just little dumps by some glass houses and other places where they were just thrown off to the side because they didn't meet the criteria of what they were trying to make. God makes vessels of wrath to throw into the heap. And he makes vessels of mercy to use as his own possession. And one of those examples is Pharaoh. Now go back to verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my, and, and that my might might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Therefore, he was a vessel of unrighteousness, a vessel of wrath being used by God to fulfill his very purposes so that Israel would be set free and God would be glorified in the condemnation of the people. Do not ever forget that when you preach the gospel, and you're preaching it, and you get 99.999% of the people who don't respond to you, that God still has a purpose for that, for himself. That the nations have heard this gospel of light, and they have rejected it and desired to remain in darkness. That is his right to do this, to show mercy to whom he wills to show mercy to. I still remember John Reisner when he taught Romans 9. He said, by the way, all the arguments of today against the sovereignty of God and his electing grace have already been exhausted. Just read Romans 9. Right? On the contrary, he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault who resist his will? Question's already been asked. People will still say God is unjust. How could he be a good God creating this heaven in this earth. So Moses fills in for us the picture. Paul helps us with filling in the picture even more in relationship to God's redemptive history. God does rule over what he creates. It's not just fish and birds and beasts. It's human beings. So how is God continuing to display his name in the earth, whether in judgment or in salvation? How is he still doing that? Well, through the things to which he created, he has manifested his, his very own divine nature and his eternal power, Paul says in Romans 1, so that they are without excuse. Right? What's going on in the world, and I mentioned it before in Tuesday Night Bible Study, um, is oneism and twoism. We are living in a oneist world. Oneism is a big, great big circle that says me, myself, and I, and everything within the world is encapsulated within my worldview. Twoism is <coughs> there is a creator, and then there is you, the humanity that God created. So, God is sovereign over all that he created. He proves it in all of these plagues against every individual God, gods of the Gods of the water, gods of the sun, gods of, of the, uh, the rain, they're all destroyed in Moses' miracles. 
So we make a shift. We go to Exodus 20 and the giving of the law. We've already mentioned it a little bit about the importance of the law. And it's probably one of the more controversial texts, even within Christianity today, to understand the law and its totality and how it still relates to you and I as Christians, although that's the biggest subject for today. He gives the beginning commandments are referring man's response back to God and then also man's responsibility for the second half, man's responsibility to other men. The Ten Commandments literally are a sign of all the other covenant promises in relationship to God. He says in Exodus 31, Celebrate the Sabbath through the generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. A sign. That's why we should not be surprised when you look in the book of Galatians and then you also go to James. To say that you can obey all the entirety of the law is to say that you are a a transgressor of the law. Why? Because just to break one law is to break the entirety of the covenant. The entirety of all laws. Break the Sabbath and you break all of the Levitical laws. Break the Sabbath and you break all of the ordinances that he gives Israel right after Moses comes down from Sinai. And we shouldn't be surprised then that they break the laws pretty quickly with the golden calf, right? So when Moses comes down with the book of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, then they do the following. Following the giving of the additional laws and the ordinances, they that relate to God and man, the covenant is ratified with blood. The laws were written in a book or a scroll. They gave their oath to obey and then blood was sprinkled, sprinkled on all the elders of Israel. This you must do. We agree with you, God. Sprinkling of the blood. In Romans 2, go to Romans 2, the front of it. I know that's my phrase. You probably get tired of me saying for the fun of it. But to me, this is very enjoyable. It should be to you, too. Learning about God. So let's start with verse 17 to 24. But if you bear the name of Jew, because remember, at this point, um, Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, and in totality, Early Jewish Christians are, are, they have the Old Testament. That's the revelation they have at the moment. But if you bear the name of Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are established, essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in doctor, in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of the truth. And let's go down to verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. It's still going on. 
God says, I'm going to destroy your enemies in Exodus and glorify my name because I'm going to set you apart as a nation, as a kingdom of priests, right? And yet, all these years later, what happens? They bring dishonor to God. They blaspheme the name of God as if they were pagan all over again. From Exodus 25 to verses 40, Moses gives instructions concerning the structure of the temple and the building of the temple, which has so much minutia that you know we don't have time to cover it. Interesting thing is, though, God even gave special giftedness to certain men in Abel, so they were able to be able to uh, construct the tent of meeting. God provides everything for the church of God and for the kingdom of God to exist and to continue on in that existence, right? But in chapters 32 and 33, we're given the account of Israel's rebellion while Moses was receiving the law of the temple, the golden calf. Oh, could you imagine? The golden calf really represents literally all of our polytheistic worldview and our gender ideology of today. Why? Because they're making the calf in their own image. Right? Man has been doing this for all of history. It's either you worship the creator as an image bearer or the image bearer worships the self and the creature by creating their own images. Was this particular animal that was chosen to be made a specific kind of an animal? What, what was a, what, what, why did they make that? Well, that's a good question. I didn't follow up on that because I got so many areas to do. But you can answer that for me because I, I know you got the answer. I'll just keep the truth, but I think the reason is because that was one of the gods of the Egyptians. Yeah. So when they said, you know, we will, we'll go back to Egypt, we'll right. worship God, we want to die there rather than out in this uncertain land in the wilderness, they were actually in their mind going back to Egyptian that's worship. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's the test for us because, you know, Satan is constantly proposing to his church more idols to worship, more of the self for self-aggrandizement for people who call themselves Christians, rather than saying, I am nothing, God, you are everything. You've shown mercy to me, save me, and keep me from my own sin and the temptation of sin. Yeah. Could you also comment, you mentioned about you know, breaking one law, you break them all. Yep. Some people here are wondering if we Sabbath breakers because we're not keeping this Sabbath. <laughs> well, again, that's another... You implied that we are. No, I didn't. No, I'm only kidding. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. No. no, I said that for the Jew, if you broke the Sabbath, you broke the entirety of the law. If you picked up sticks on the Sabbath, you were killed for it. It was, it was a high-handed sin. Why? Because God made a covenant with the people of God. And he ratified it in blood. There's no greater covenant than a blood covenant. But why, why is that so important, by the way? Why is that concept so important to understand in the Old Testament? Doesn't it represent the consequences if you break it? The consequences of it, but the blood is the typology of God's only begotten Son. 
So you're not only striking at God the Creator, but also the Son as the Creator. Right? So if, if the Sabbath is for Israel, uh, or, and it's not for us, is stealing for them and not for us as well? So do they have any application to the church? I thought you were going to comment on that, maybe. Well, no. I mean, I've just got so many topics to go, because that's the only way you can do it is topical. Um, that's a study in itself in terms of understanding the relevance of the old and the new. Um, some scholars will take the Ten Commandments and make the Sabbath a moral law. But I, I say back to our Presbyterian friends who say that, um, because they call the Ten Commandments an eternal moral law, I would say ask any pagan person, not even pagan, just any non-believer out there, and ask them if the, uh, the thought of breaking the law of the Sabbath ever entered their mind. Most of them don't even know the word Sabbath. No. People will say, I know I'm not supposed to murder. But they will not say, I know I should be going to church. It, it's, it, doesn't, come, it doesn't come to people naturally as the other laws of the Ten Commandments do. That's just one way to reason through it. And again, that's a huge subject from a hermeneutic perspective. The, you know, it just, there's just too much to look at. So what's going on is when they are, when they have created this golden calf, they are, as Paul said to the Romans, blaspheming God's name before the nations. You know, I mean, God would have been totally right at that moment of time to say, I'm done with you. Think of it. And if he did say, I'm done with you, then where would you and I be? He's compassionate and gracious. You know, Paul says, I think it's in chapter 5 of Romans, he says, said, having passed over the sins previously committed, he became just and the justifier. He waited for his son to come. And to pay the penalty, the true blood that will satisfy the very wrath of God. And in that patience, that divine patience, he passed over sins previously committed in Israel. And yes, by the way, by extension, your sin and my sin when we were children, when we were teenagers, when we were adults, depending on when God had saved us, right? Yeah, April. I was just, when you were talking about the blood, I was thinking of Leviticus, was it 17, 11 or something? Mm-hmm. The life of the creature is in the blood, and without it, there's no remission uh, of sins. Without Jesus having sprinkled us in his blood, there would be no life. Right. You know, the old Puritans used to say life is in the blood. They knew something was going on, even though they didn't have the technology, right? They knew something was going on. This sin is transferred from Adam spiritually. But the Puritans were saying this sin from Adam is also being transferred physically. Right? We shouldn't be surprised when Paul says renew the spirit of the mind in holiness and righteousness of truth. We shouldn't be surprised that our heart has 40,000 neurons. That's communicating between the mind. And the mind is more than just the physical order organ, the mind is also it has spirit because it's part and parcel of the spirit of man. And so we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
to comprehend the very word of God. And we have chosen to go our own way. Eventually, we're going to hit the book of Judges, right? And what is the, what is the common refrain in the book of Judges? They did what was right in their own eyes. This is the waywardness of man. Even men that God chooses. That's the reason why we sing that song that says we're all prone to wander. It's only by grace we go, right? It's a fearful thing to think how easily we would probably fall if it were not for the indwelling Spirit of God. How easily we would fall if we did not have the Word of God that the Spirit of God would teach us so that our hearts would be convicted in the spirit of our minds to be able to follow Him and to do so consistently. So therefore, this pagan God, this calf, has now basically been set up as a replacement for the God who just delivered them. I'm not surprised that we see warnings, especially in Hebrews, about those who have trampled underfoot the Son of Man and forgotten Him. Because if you trample underfoot the Son of Man, you have no other way to be saved. It's either through Christ and Him alone, through the shed blood of Christ and Him alone, or nothing else in this world. You can't save yourself. You can't create another idol. You can't, you can't uh, create a calf to do it. Therefore, Exodus ends up with a building and the erection of the tabernacle. And it ends with God's glory filling it. God will now be in your presence as you walk with him. The laws are given. The tabernacle is built. Remember, and it's interesting, I learned this a long time ago from a really, really good teacher pastor that when Israel and David and entered David's heart that uh, he wanted to build the building after looking at his own palaces and saying, and, there, and you're still living in a tent? God was content to be in a mobile tabernacle. But he acquiesced to David's heart because he loved David. But obviously this is the big span of God's sovereignty and his foreknowledge that knows even in the minds of men of what they are thinking in the past, the present, and the future. But he intended to be with his people in a mobile tent of tabernacle in the wilderness experience. Why would that be so, by the way? Is it, is it reminiscent of the way Christ identified with his people? Okay. I mean, he came to be a man among us and mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, condescended to be, to walk with men. Okay. Um, just in the same, same uh, mold, I think. Okay. Exodus 25 says, God says to Israel, build me a tabernacle that I might dwell among them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what was inclusive in that tabernacle was the whole system it really magnified the holiness of God. It did, it did. And his presence day and night, right? Pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. And sometimes that, the well, the, the, the tabernacle was immersed in the cloud. And when the cloud lifted, then they moved. It's a great, wonderful picture of us moving when God tells us to move. Knowing the mind of God and the will of God. Because 
the com- again, the commandments must come from God. And Paul actually brings this up in the book of Romans in terms of understanding Israel, that they were given all the covenants, the ordinances, the laws, all these things. They were specially privileged amongst all of mankind. Everybody did not have the privileges compared to that one little dinky nation of two to three million people at that period of time. Everyone else was going to hell. Everyone. Now, you mentioned last week how this has great precedence toward understanding that difficult doctrine of God's limited atonement or particular redemption. Because it's, you know, one of the foundations to that is that when the priest went into the temple, he had on his breastplate only the 12 tribes of Israel. He didn't have Edom, he didn't have the Moabites, he didn't have anybody else. So this is a special relationship that God says, I'm going to travel with you. Imagine that. You know, when our heart is grieved, he knows the path in which we walk. We all have grieved hearts from time to time. Someone dies or maybe I wasn't strong in faith yesterday or today and I felt like I let down the Lord. He's still traveling with me. Right? His tent of meeting is within me now because he's made us a temple. Right? By the way, right here, this little gathering, the church is also in your New Testament called a temple. He's traveling with us. We are the congregation of the Lord's. We are the assembly of God. Now, not just Jew, but Jew and Gentile. And remember, and this is so important, that a true Jew, and that's why Paul brings up, not all all Israel are of Israel. Only those who God has chosen to show mercy upon. Romans 9. And therefore, only those Jews who were saved were those who were circumcised of heart, not of flesh. And sometimes we don't make that distinction in our Old Testament. Only those who are circumcised of heart because the majority of that generation who wandered in the wilderness died in the wilderness because they did not have a circumcised heart. And so this is a lesson to us as well. It's not our outward performance. It's not our external per se holiness because we can deceive ourselves. We can act like the best Christian you could ever be and we can be a monster when we go back home. Right? And therefore, it's that circumcision of the heart. God is traveling with me. He has sealed me with His Spirit and His Spirit never leaves me nor forsakes me. He is in you. You are a temple of God. And that is just so mind-boggling in relationship to understanding not just the theology of it, but the practicality of it. I mean, that's the truth. God dwells within us. In fact, when you research it out through your New Testament, you find out the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all in one essence abide in you. The Trinity is in you. So, we have a very neat picture. Remember the in the book of Revelation to finish things up here, 
the two witnesses. Anybody remember what the, which chapter is that in, brother? 13? 11. 11. Um, the two witnesses, right? And they rise up in the city of Babylon, right? I mean, because the book of Revelation is speaking about a, the city of man. Babylon, spiritual Babylon. And Christians living amongst that world. <clears throat> Actually, if you want, you can go there. Go to Revelation 11. Verse 11? Yeah, I guess that verse 4 and following. Oh, okay, I'm looking at that and I'm looking for the two witnesses. Oh, verse 3. There you go. All right. Uh, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. We go further down and we look. Uh, verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and smite the earth and every plague as often as they desire. Now, who are the two witnesses here then? Because we're given the history of the two witnesses. Elijah and Moses, right? So look what verses 7 and 8 say. This is fascinating. Because remember what I want your minds to get onto in this last two, three minutes, five minutes is this. That Old Testament that seems to be so obscure and mystical some days, you know, it, it, it can be very um, uh, confusing sometimes to see all those stories in the redemptive light in which they are placed. It's difficult, I guess that's what I'm saying. But we must see the redemptive plan in an overall sense, which, by the way, Revelation is giving us here, look at verse 7 and 8. And when they, Moses and Elijah, right? Now that's the type, but I believe these witnesses refer to every single Christian in the church. Okay? In this text. And when they finished their testimony, when Chrissy finished her testimony, when Susan finished her testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them and we may die for our faith. Just as Stephen did. Even as he was looking back to Moses when he was about to receive the blows of the stones. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Sometimes we die as martyrs. In fact, you can say all Christians will die, of course, like all other people. But some die as martyrs for the faith that they proclaim like Moses and Elijah. And at the end of the day, we're dying in the city of man still. Sodom and Egypt. And yet it says, I'm trying to remember what verse this is. Come up here. It says, come up here. 
12. There you go. Let's look at verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Come up here, dear Christian. Your plight in the presence of the city of men is only temporary and short. As Moses and the Israelites fled a city and Israelites died in the wilderness for their faith in Christ, so too you and I still live in the city of man as well. We must flee. But we must carry with us the unleavened bread of holiness within ourselves. And so as we do that, we await the day when God says to you and I, come up here and be delivered from Egypt and Sodom. That's our longing, isn't it? In an overall sense, that's our longing. We want to be delivered from Egypt. We've been in slavery for 400 years. We are witnessing in this world and I want to be delivered from Southbridge or Tolland, Connecticut. I drive by... I drive by all these congregational churches. I used to be a member of one of them. And I see these open and firming signs and I want to lose my lunch. And I mean, I am, I am like Lot. I really do. I tell Joyce, I feel today like I'm like Lot. I'm vexed in my soul. I do not enjoy this earth any longer. And God is saying, come up here. Egypt is not your home. Sodom is not your home. Heaven is. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we thank and praise you for the exodus of our own lives, Lord, that you delivered us from our own sin, from our own self-righteousness. We, O oh Lord, tried to create our own selves in this world. We failed, and I thank you for failing for me failing, O oh Lord, because, O oh Lord, I wouldn't have looked for you. But in that failure, O oh Lord, I saw the righteous judgment of God, and as my aunt had preached to me for so long that hell was a real place, I went on bended knee and repented of my sin, only because your mercy fell upon me. And all of us have our own story in this, Lord, our own exodus from our own sin, and our own hope for this city of heaven and the city of God. And so, Lord, fill us with your spirit this day as we go into that heavenly place, that temple of God called the church, as we worship you and thank you, O Lord, as those who are witnesses of God. And yes, O Lord, we worship and exalt your holy name as the creator of this world and giving us and making us a new creation in Christ Jesus. We so thank you for this, Lord. And we devote a whole service to you for that and to that end. Glory to your holy name, Lord. Amen.